I really appreciate you coming on the show, Austin. I, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I, I see your posts. I see your feedback, your comments. Um, so, Austin, you know, tell the good folks that are listening and watching. Tell them, you know, who you are, what got you into the business. Yeah, I uh, I definitely don't have a typical story uh, with the car business. I didn't really grow up around cars, didn't work on my own cars, uh, had no interest in cars, but man, really through a, through a random connection um, at, at a college uh, called Indiana Wesleyan here in the uh, state of Indiana, uh, played on a golf team with um, a family member of whose grandfather started a huge car dealership uh, group here in Indiana and Illinois. And man, one thing led to another. He said, you got to come out and sell cars for me. You got to come out and sell cars for me. And he finally wore me down long enough, like a good salesman, <laughs> popped me into uh, getting into the business. So um, here we are. You know, that was uh, about seven years ago at this point. Okay. Okay. Now, it's very – you, know, you say it's not typical getting in the car business, and and you're right. There are a, a fairly standard three options for the most part. You either absolutely love cars, and it's the only thing that you can think about when you grow up. Um, your family is in it in some way, whether your your family's a mechanic or in some way, shape, or form, or your family's in sales, some say some way, shape, or form, and they get you in that way. And there really isn't there really isn't other than that. That's about it. Pretty much across the board. Now there are a few and far between that are the exceptions. You you seem to be one of them. Kaylee Feely was another one. It, we had uh, like you may mention, you know, a good uh, salesperson will wear you down. I believe the good folks at Parts Edge were wearing Kaylee down, but she was working behind the counter at Subway. So <laughs> it, uh, folks come into automotive business, you know, differently from all walks of life, and it's uh, it's great because it brings a whole different kind of perspective. Because if you don't think about the car business first, it means you live. A whole different series of, of steps that most car people don't before they come into the business. You bring a whole new, fresh set of ideas and perspectives and, and, and theories. So I, I appreciate that. So once you got in and, and you got to that point, what was that first year like for you? And first year was crazy. Uh, you know, I started out on the sales floor. So when I when I started the job, I think it's important to mention uh, my wife and I've been married about a year, and so we were living in a different town, so we were going to have to move, right? And uh, man, the salary was there was no salary, right? It it, it was a draw, a sales position, mm -hmm. the four hundred dollar draw. You don't sell a car, you get four hundred bucks, great, but you got to pay it back next week, so you better hope you sell a car, right? So, man, it was kind of looking back on it a pretty stupid decision <laughs> with. Uh, just being married uh, the first year, but man, we had a great support team around us. And again, I, I think this is where I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot. You know, the, the group, the employer that you work for matters so much. And, you know, I had a wonderful family that I knew uh, pretty well. And, you know, we were really trusting them with, uh, you know, our future and my career. And man, it's worked out, um, you know, through that first year, I got salesman of the month, my first uh, full month selling cars. So it's not a... <laughs> A, a little lucky, you know, the 30-year the guy had a week-long vacation in there, but he still usually never lost. Uh, he, he still usually never lost even when that happened. So, you know, luckily, I had some good deals that I fell into, some other people that I knew that was were helping to support me in the business, uh, including my father-in-law. So there you go, one of my deals, the first full month. And, 
yeah, after that, man, I was the internet manager for a couple months and then promoted to new car manager. So in, in a matter of a year, uh, worked my way up, uh, pretty far. Awesome. So you were, you went through, you went through the ringer first time you were, if you've got somebody who's been selling cars for 30 years off for a week and you're thrown into that store and your first month, so to speak, you're, you're basically trying to fill some pretty big shoes right off the hob. You're trying to figure out how to sell. You're trying to figure out how to support your family. You're trying to figure out what the car business actually means to you and, and to everybody around to be part of the team. That's a, that's a lot of stress in that first year to figure that out, let alone the first month, right? It's, it's so completely different to what you're used to from any other business coming into it. So once you, you, you know, went from selling cars, used car managing – or not used cars managing, internet sales – and then you became new car manager. So what take me through what it's like what it's been like since that point in your life. Like what did you go through? What are some of the the distinctive situations that have crafted Austin Conroy as of today? Yeah, so you're saying, you know, from that first year in the car business up till now? Yeah. Tell me give me say three really important moments that have crafted mm. to, to get you to where you are now and what are you doing now? Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, man, just that moment of, uh, you know, when my friend, uh, Trey said, Hey, I want you to come work for me. And, and we, when we finally said, yeah, we're going to do it. Um, you know, that was, um, I remember taking my wife out and, uh, we visited him at his house and had dinner, you know, out on his back patio, uh, with him and his wife. And, um, you know, that's really important for a few reasons. I think it just shows uh, the relationship side of the business, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, you know, but that was the first huge pivotal moment because, you know, really, Terry and his wife sold uh, the job and the town and everything to my wife, um, you know, as that relationship. And so that was a huge moment for me. Um, man, I would say the second moment um, happened uh, right before what I do now. So uh, from a sales manager, I moved to the finance department and uh, was in finance for about a year and a half. And then this is the it, the second pivotal moment. I probably should have said it first, but uh, I went to bed a finance manager and I woke up a service manager. So that was, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many people can say, uh, A, that their general manager is crazy enough to put them in that situation, but uh, you know, B, I'd, I'd never written an RO. Um, I'd sold cars, but didn't really know much about anything else. I'd sold warranties, but never worked on a car. So uh, that was a little bit crazy, you know. And then I think um, at the third one, um, story of an employee that I think about quite often, um, you know, when I was managing the uh, service department there, I'd learned a lot through COVID and different things, but, you know, I'd never really seen somebody take a big step in their career. And that was the first time I saw a porter, uh, that, that we moved from a porter to a rental manager, um, and then to be a lube tech. And now, um, he is a certified, uh, Toyota technician there for a Toyota store. So I think that's the other pivotal moment is seeing him, uh, progress through those different points of his career and especially recently getting the certification, um, just really, really means a lot to us and I think is why we we keep doing what we're doing. The fact that you brought that up as one of your key distinctive moments and it's nothing to do with you 
that tells me why you're you've moved through the positions, why you've been able to lead teams. When you put the teams first and you look at their achievements like it's your own, not that you achieved them, but they achieved it. That and that's a, an empowering moment. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And to think that and th- and we talk about this on a regular basis uh, amongst a lot of folks, especially the ten mil lads and I. There are lots of options coming into the automotive business, especially when you start in the shop. Once you become a technician, there is lots of opportunities after becoming a technician. But more to your point, just walking in the door as a a porter, perhaps, that requires no skill set beyond showing up. That's it. That That is all that is required of you. Show up to work and work. Beyond that, that's it. But you can move through that. And take those skills. Okay, you learn a little bit about the business. You understand, you know, what cars mean to you, what cars mean, what they do, what they can do for people, and how it represents the customer, so on and so forth. And you move through the position, and you get into the shop. That's an option. We know a couple of people that that watch, listen to, and and, and are around the show, like uh, Eric Outagi and um, Joe Chambers. They started in various division one in detail and one in, in, as a porter and Sean Armour as a porter as well. Sorry, as detail as well. They they needed to show up every day. They felt that that need to show up every day, and it took them to various assorted positions in their career. One is now a national service advisor trainer. One is a fixed ops director of multiple stores. Uh, one is a um, BDC consultant that is multinational. He he coaches across Canada and the U.S. Like, and that's from literally day one, walking in the door knowing nothing about cars. So that's awesome. That's really awesome. So to that point, to those points, what you doing today? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I am a dad. And, uh, you know, a husband, so I got three little ones. But, yeah, outside of that, um, I do work for uh, Roman Automotive Group. So we have a number of rooftops um, in Illinois, um, Indiana, and then also one in uh, uh, Wisconsin. So um, I'm proud to represent the Lafayette region of stores as a fixed operations manager. So overseeing um, the service and parts department for um, really five locations. So Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Kia. And then we have a collision center as well. Okay, awesome. So how many ballpark, or do you probably know exactly the numbers, how many technicians, including collision, are you responsible for? I should have looked that up. I, <laughs> I should know that. Uh, no, we have, uh, we have close to 60, I think it's 65. 65. 65? Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of lives. That's a lot of mm-hmm. families to, to be overseeing. And we've talked about a bit a bit about this on SDL this morning. We really brought up leadership, and Joe and Eric brought up um, the, the point top of conversation at SDL this morning was how what do you do to affect flat rate hours? And I'd kind of like to to put that put you on the spot to to answer that very question. What do you do? What is perhaps your primary focus when looking at your stores when you want to affect flat rate hour production? What's one thing that you look at? Uh, appointments per day. Okay. I mean, I you know, I think um, if you're talking from 
front of the house standpoint, you know, the things that we do are, um, you know, we're driving customer relationships and that means mm-hmm. driving them back into the store, making sure when they're in the store, we give them a good experience when they drive out so that they will drive in again, you know, really looking at that retention cycle. So, um, you know, practically we're looking at how many appointments of data we get, you know, what BDC activity we have outbound phone calls, how are we getting business in? Um, you know, and then I think as far as um, our responsibility to the technician crew is make sure to increase their production. So, A, make sure the work's there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, B, make sure the shop is clean, well lit. Uh, they have all the tools that they need to do the job. You know, we're not, they're not asking us for a shop tool and then six months later, you know, hey, where's that? Where's it at? You know, um, so I think uh, in terms of supporting the technician team and then, you know, making sure we don't hold them back from any sort of training. Um, you know, as much effort as they want to put in, we want to support that and match that effort. So I think, again, looking kind of at my role and my responsibilities and then the, the technician side, that's how I feel like we can um, improve flat rate hours. Awesome. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. The big one right there I think a lot of technicians listening will appreciate is you said making sure they have all the tools they need, but at the same time holding yourself accountable to make sure that it actually arrives. I think mm-hmm. – Unfortunately, there are some folks out there um, – I'm a big proponent of the follow – there is almost nothing more important than the follow-up and the follow-through, right? We ordered this on September 1st, 2023 because this is a $7,000 toolkit for a brand-new model that's supposed to show up. We're supposed to have them any day now. It's now September 30th. Where's the toolkit? And if nobody at the store knows, like, okay, it's my responsibility to make sure that, that you guys get it. I, perhaps I should have been a little bit faster on it, but the fact of the matter is when the team sees you be accountable for your own actions to ensure their well-being, their productivity, so on and so forth, that's what highlights high-value leadership. I preach yeah, high-value leadership. Accountability is so important. Yeah, I tell you what, I interview a ton of people, and one of the questions I always ask is, um, who's the best manager you've ever worked for and why? Now, there's two reasons I ask that question. I hope to get a lead for the next person I'm going to reach out to to try to hire because whoever they say was their best manager, I probably want that person on my team if I'm considering hiring the person in front of me. Uh And then the second one, I want to hear how they say, how they answer that question, the and why, what were they the best manager to see if the team that I'm interviewing them for, that manager fits the mold there. But you would be very surprised. I would say by far the number one answer to that question, you know, is why were they your best manager? is they will always say they just followed through. If I asked them to do something or I brought something to them, they got it done. They either gave me the no or they gave me the yes, and we moved on. There weren't things that drug from week to week, and the manager said, oh, I ordered it. Oh, oh yeah, I'll do it this afternoon. Oh, you know, you want somebody that's going to, you know, say what they do and do what they say, and, and we're not perfect people, so that's that's a lot to ask. It is, especially in your in your position, you're looking after 65 families, right? Not including everybody else, you know, the service advisor crews, the parts, the the people who go and pick up parts, not just the people who work in parts on the counters and so forth. Like there, there's, there's, I'm going to bet if there's 65 technicians, you've probably got a support staff almost the same size between parts, the drive and so forth. Like that's 130 people, give or take. You are tasked to try and make sure that all 130 people or whatever the number is have all the tools, resources, and so forth 
they require to do the job successfully. And it's on you to make sure that when you say something that you are able to follow through on it or whoever's you've de- whoever you've delegated that that task to follows through on it. No, you don't want to micromanage, but at the same point, holding there's a different and this is oh no, let me I'm squirreling a little bit. My apologies. But <laughs> this is where I've had uh, during coaching with technicians. This is where I've had a bit of issue where technicians don't essentially under or some don't fundamentally understand the difference because there's a difference between micromanage and holding accountable, right? You have to hold people accountable for their own actions. But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you're doing it constantly, that's the micromanage, right? If you can't, mm-hmm. if you don't allow somebody to fail, they can't learn. You can't allow them to fail too much or else they're of no help to themselves or the business. But that's where that balance, I think where you balance micromanaging out when it becomes a proper balance, that's when you get accountable. Does that, does that sound mm-hmm. fair? Yeah, I think so. I, we could get into some pretty deep uh, leadership concepts here, but uh, I, I think the uh, – I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, man, just the, the big one to pull out there, you know, just realizing if you are a manager, you want to go to the next level, um, you have to be comfortable with being held accountable to things. And, you know, as a, as a director, it's, it's not fair for me to not hold someone accountable, you know, because I want people to be the best version of themselves that they can be, you know, as a manager, as a coach, that's what you want. And it's not fair to them if I don't hold them to a standard that I know they're capable of or a standard of the group average, you know, Um, on the flip side of that, though, you know, I feel like anybody can do that. I think the leadership portion of it is the follow up of helping people address their weaknesses. So not only you're holding them accountable to things, if they're not meeting those expectations, you have to do your job trying to get them up to those expectations, whether it's training or coaching or developing or, you know, being there alongside them and, and working with them. I think that it's a very eloquent quick way of bringing that back around. Uh, I wrote a little article a couple of weeks back about when slow isn't smooth and understanding when people use that as a crutch because they're not acting slow or they're not acting fast enough uh, on anything, whether it's decision making or actually physically doing something, you're talking about holding people accountable as quickly as possible to the right the depth of that person, uh, holding them to the standard that you know or believe that they're capable of, of achieving. And also the one of the most detrimental thing you probably experience this as well um, when you get service managers or people in middle management who are incapable of pulling the pin on someone's career at that facility. What I found through coaching, what I found in my own career experience, and it's, it's a meme and a quote for a reason, there is nothing more toxic to a business than a, a manager who accepts mediocrity, right? Mediocrity kills shops. And mediocrity turns to toxicity very quickly. And sometimes mediocrity can look like high performance, in my view. You can have mediocrity because someone can be a super high performer, but it's because they're being fed all kinds of jam. That's mediocrity in my mind. Because if they're, not cap- if they're capable of doing challenging work, especially as a technician or even as an advisor, if they're capable of doing challenging work but they're being fed the easy stuff, the rest of the team can see it. It's mediocrity. Somebody is being mediocre in, in their job, whether it's the technician themselves or the person feeding them. It's irrelevant. It's mediocrity. Going a step beyond that, um, 
accountability it's I think in your circumstance you have the the luxury and the burden of overseeing several stores so you get perspective irrespective of brand right you've got Kia you said I think you said Kia Hyundai Honda and Toyota in a collision store if I recall right. correctly yep. you have yep. it's all import but they're four different brands and collision mm -hmm. so you can see how five different stores operate it means that you can pull bits of good stuff from here and then insert it in the other four and pull bits of good from here and pull it to put it to the other store. That's a luxury that small stores don't necessarily have. What's, what, what's perhaps one piece of advice that you could give perhaps a service manager out there that has one store, like where you were the first time you went from out of the box and into the service manager's position? What was, what's maybe a piece of advice you learned at that stage? Man, I think it's like anything in life, you know, whether it's a sport, um, a hobby, if you want to get better, you got to have a mentor. You have to have a group of people around you to bounce ideas off of. So just because based on physical location, you know, or group size, you don't have four or five stores uh, that you have other other people. You can find uh, similar stores to you, similar managers to you, maybe people who've been there, uh, you know, longer than you to to really pull you along. But it's something that you're going to have to seek out and, and building that network around you. And I think that's why, um, you know, I've really tried to get back on uh, uh, LinkedIn, start to do a little bit of content there, start to do a little bit of marketing. And, and it's amazing what opportunities open up for me, right? Because I'm trying to find other leaders in my role that I can learn from. Um, and if mm -hmm. I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing my job because, you know, who's, who's pushing me in this role? You know, people ask, what's the next step for you? I just want to get better at the role I'm at and see what happens. Right. Um, and that's kind of the, the mantra of, of, you know, what my career has been. Awesome. Awesome. Effectively networking, um, but broadening, not just networking to network, networking specifically to find yourself a mentor, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Is similar circumstance. So thinking back to some of the people that I've met through SDL in similar circumstances, you know, I would consider him a friend of mine. Lamont Harris was in uh, a store as a service director. Then uh, a period of time later, he became, you know, parts and service director at another facility. And now uh, probably a year, year and a half later, he has transitioned himself to um, a fixed operations director of two stores. And then I, I don't believe that I was the reason, but I believe that part of Service Drive Live is almost like a networking event every Sunday that isn't just – it isn't focused on meeting people. It's focused on learning, finding maybe indirect mentors through listening to other people speak and pulling the best bits from all of it saying, okay, this is this, this can really work in my little store, right? Awesome. Awesome. And I think you bring up a good point there too. You know, maybe it's not face-to-face -face networking, but using the resources that are at your disposal. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, some of the things you mentioned, Service Drive Live. Um, you know, some of your vendor partners that you have, they may have classes that you could go to. Um, you know, they may have training. So I think it's maybe it's just that underlying um, ability to continually learn and continually train and continually to get better at at you know what you're doing. Exactly. I think the opportunity – one of the, the scary things I think for perhaps new service managers and new people in the business where they're either new to leadership in some fashion, whether it's new to being a shop foreman or a team lead 
or or something of that nature there there's been so much negative stigma stigma towards vendors especially vendors um that they're afraid of reaching out to them for help like oh they're just gonna pitch me it's like well the bad ones are the the ones that only care about money are but there's some really great vendors out there in almost every area of the business that try to help dealerships that truly put on some really great stuff for free. Yes, it's a lead magnet. Yes, they're trying to get your business. But the good ones aren't going to go, hey, you want to buy? The good ones are going to go, we're going to put on an event, and we're going to put some really great content on that event, whether it's in person or virtual. And we're going to try and help you as much as we possibly can from our perspective. We're going to put either people on a panel or it's going to be a live stream of our CEO talking about uh, about these products that are in the market or these topics that are in the market. And we want you to come and we want you to talk about it. We want to get your feedback and understand. And maybe at the end, hey, it was put on by us. Do you mind if we do a demo? Doesn't cost you anything. Something like that. So don't be afraid to attend the event. Don't be afraid to, to take the donut off the table and have a, a cup of coffee at the in-person thing. But you can still learn something. Take take advantage of those resources. Um, what would you say, speaking of, of resources and, and stuff like that, what would you say in the last two years, what conference, resource, or virtual event have you attended that was the most impactful and why? Um, if I can use this one, uh, we're in an NADA 20 group, um, so there's – I think a lot of people listening to this will probably be, uh, know what the NADA uh, is. Do you? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I, I went. Uh, to, I went to this year. I went to this NADA 23, and it was my first one. And I'm very hey. thankful that uh, my current boss, who wasn't my boss at the time, my current boss Russell Hill and yeah. uh, Rick Eckert, uh, were very kind in, in helping me get there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. NADA was pretty awesome. I'm hoping to go again this year. Are you going this? I'm going this year. So. We I'm got, very hopeful. Depends. We're gonna figure out all the logistics. I, I'm. I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go no matter what the consequence is. I think I'm gonna go. Yeah. All right. Cool. We'll have to hook up when we're there. So I know we're. Uh, yes, we just booked. We booked our flights, so we're in. But. Uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So the so the NADA has a thing called 20 group. So what they do in a 20 group is they put my dealer group with. Um, other like dealer groups that are in different markets within the country. So you're not you're not competing dealers, but you know what we do um, three times a year. We get together for two days. Um, you know, it's like a Sunday night to Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. um, and we meet and we discuss. You know, there's all sorts of financial data. We we discuss the the industry is worthy in it. Um, in different roles, what do we struggle with? Really, anything that I deal with, um, I can take to them and. It's amazing how we learn from each other because, you know, although we're all very similar size uh, dealer groups and we're all fairly successful, um, you know, there's there's areas that I do a lot better than other other groups, and then there's areas that they do a lot better uh, than me, and we're we're just constantly getting together and sharing that advice. So, um, you know, that's not one I I think that most people have access to. So probably a probably a bad one to mention, but um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think so because I think. From a from a contextual point of view, that's the most impactful thing to you, and and why? And whilst there might be other service managers, fix ops managers, fix ops directors that may have not have 
experienced that just hearing that it's like that's a thing that, mm. that that's a thing that could be enough for them to be the little birdie in their gm's ear it's like hey i realize that we only have one store but how do we get in on this like what do we have mm. to do so that we can have the ears and eyes of 19 other stores that we can learn from and figure out you know is there something that we could be doing better dealer to dealer that i can learn from not necessarily a vendor. Maybe they found a vendor's like, hey, you know, ABC Motors just got this S A S S S X thing that works really great, and all of a sudden our gross profit has gone up seven percent year over year. Like it's crazy. So, and then something like that, right? So it's the uh, what was the phrase? You don't know what you don't know, and yeah. sometimes all it requires is someone else saying a phrase like NADA twenty group. And service manager somewhere goes, what's that? Yeah. Now they know. Now they know yeah. it's a thing. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Now, going one step further, at the last one, mm -hmm. what's the single most impactful thing that you learned at that last one? Oh, man. Um, so sometimes the uh, dealer principles will come to this event, too. So. Um, not only do you get the fixed ops director from the group, you'll also have the the owner, which, you know, these these groups, we're talking about groups that have 20 plus stores, um, you know, that are a part of them. So very large dealer groups, these guys that lead these operations are incredible business people and, and everything. So this guy's from a, a Southern store, so he's got a little Southern accent, which I won't do justice to, but he said... Um, <laughs> Y'all, we keep raising these door rates. We're going to have to raise how we treat the customers, too. You know, so so basically that was his whole thing, right? And, uh, man, it's such a simple concept, but one I've just really been dwelling on, uh, you know, and putting a lot of thought into what does next year's customer experience look like? You know, what are we going to hold people accountable to? Uh, quite frankly, how do we hold technicians accountable to it, right? Um and we can get really deep into stuff that we're really starting to roll out with technicians uh, taking videos and pictures and, you know, what percentage are they doing? How many per ticket? Like, we're going to look at that and give them a bonus opportunity just by doing those activities, right? Because the hope is in turn, the actions that we do are going to raise the customer experience and we know the CSI scores are going to go up, right? So that was probably the big topic of uh, our meeting this year, and that was really what the comment came out of. But I thought, how simple, but how many times we just totally miss it when it comes to customer service. And I can tell you, uh, I don't know how many times the MPI, and more importantly now that we're rolling into 2023, the video MPI comes into the conversation across every panel I'm I'm in when I talk with the lads about about a day-to-day -day basis for mechanics, day-to-day uh, -day basis of how it's charged or whether it's charged, but how much that that inspection plays such a primary role into not only the outcome of a mechanics day, but the outcome of the service advisor's day, the outcome of the business's day, and most importantly, the outcome of the customer's day. If a MPI is done, and forget about the acronym for a second, if an inspection is done on every single vehicle, and that report is presented to every customer, 
on every single vehicle, there is only positive outcome that can come from it, period, because you elicit the basic needs of almost every customer out there. They want to know their vehicle's safe, and they want to know you're doing your job. And fundamentally, everything comes in – I think at this point it's safe to say but that no vehicle comes to a, a service facility of any kind, comes to a facility without the need for an inspection. Because it doesn't matter. I'm just here for an oil, cha an oil change. Guess what an oil change is? You change the fluid, but you're doing an inspection. Hmm. Uh, I'm just here for wiper blades. Guess what? I need to inspect the wiper blades. I'm not going to change them for you. It's like, well, they just need change. It's like, why? Well, it's been a year. It's like, okay, I can put them on. Would you like me to inspect them for whether I should put winter blades on? Would you like the premium blades? Or would you just like inserts if we happen to be at a Mitsubishi store? Right? What would you like me to do? I can I can check the vehicle. I'll check the vehicle out for free for you. For wiper blades? It's like, we're here to take care of you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer. Let's do an inspection on your on your vehicle. Make sure that you are safe. Well, can you do it right now? It's like, yes. And this, you know, I'm going to go back to the beginning in for a second. The very first thing you said when you're talking about improving or talking about flat rate hours is BDC. Okay, and your appointments. Uh, was it last week or the week before? I can't remember on SDA. We were talking about uh, appointments and how do you do appointments, and more importantly, moving towards not having appointments. Mm -hmm. That some of the top uh, dealerships in the country, in the US, are moving towards a no appointment necessary uh, train of thought. What say you about? Then moving away from the need for appointments and move, as, as, as the Titan would say, come, going to where the customers are, so to speak, between mobile mm. and being able to deal with walk-ins. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it were up to me, I would do no appointments tomorrow. And, you know, a uh, couple of things you're up against. Customers in our area, you know, we're really a rural area. So we're, we're located between Chicago and Indianapolis. Those are the two big metropolitans. And, um, you know, we're in a lot of ways, we're a college town. Uh, Purdue University is here. Uh, and then, mm -hmm. you know, the agriculture, there's a lot of farming around where we are. So um, kind of forget where I was going with this, but um, what are we talking about? <laughs> appointments and the need for no appointments. Yes, yes, yes. So, all right, so I got into town, you know, I have been driving home from work, um, you know, at so many different times of the day. You know, my schedule changes. I never have a consistent day, and it's hard for me to make an appointment for anything, and I think that's what most customers are for, too. It, it you know, man, they got to work, so they got to be work at 7, and our shop opens at 7.30, so then they got to drop it off, and then they got to coordinate this person, that person, this person. You know, but if they just, oh, I need my oil change, I can just go right in there. And they don't have to worry about making an appointment. They can do it when it's, it's on their mind. I think that's serving the customer better. You know, and I think a lot of times where we get hung up um, in the industry is we are so into it that we kind of forget what the customer experience is like. We kind of forget what it was like to be a customer, right? 
to have to make an appointment at a dealership. Because when we do it, we just bring it in when we start our shift and we say, hey, take care of it. And the service manager says, cool, I got you. The keys will be at the desk. You know, we'll, we'll run them up to you. Mm-hmm. That's our idea of an oil change, right? But, you know, if we take the time to reimagine that customer experience to front to back, um, you know, a lot of these places popping up around me is take five oil changes, you know, the classic Jiffy Lubes. Um, we have a bunch of tire tire stops going up around us. You know, and what those businesses have done is taken opportunities, um, you know, from dealerships or independent shops that schedule appointments. And, and they're saying, hey, we'll do it in five minutes. We know your time's valuable. Boom, in and out. You know, tire shops, same thing. They want to go to some place. They sell some tires that they get free road hazard, that they get free replacements, that they get, you know, free air and that. And, that, and that's just their tires are taken care of. They don't have to make an appointment. It's not a hassle. They're in stock. Um, you know, so I think... That's really, you know, when it comes down to it, thinking about it like a customer and trying to go back to, hey, when you were a customer, right? We got to realize that. And we got to realize that appointments a lot of times are are not good for the customer. We need to be there for whenever they want us to be there for them, really. I think that's one of the reasons why a friend of mine, I think with big proponent, Zach Perkle, you know, A, being open as much as humanly possible at the store, mm-hmm. you know, putting in being as 24 hours as possible, putting in shifts, finding technicians willing to work shifts, finding technicians who are willing to, to put in top-notch effort irrespective of the time of the day, give them flexibility, give them the opportunity to make sure they can be with their families in, in the way that they set up schedules, um, making sure that they're able to be present and available for the customers when the customers need to come in, you know, Yes, you still have the opportunity to make schedule and opportunity to, to bring you know appointments in because that helps you deal with logistics. That helps you deal with inventory control and parts. That helps you deal with a whole lot of other things like staffing, right? The last thing you need to do is have a light shift on a Friday afternoon at three o'clock, and all of a sudden you have fifty walk-ins of, out of out of like things that you can't plan for. You can't plan for, but at the end of the, end of the day, you got to have some kind of flow and some kind of you know what I mean. Mm. That it, it, that enters the chat, but on the same token, you know how much do you give? And this comes the the back backside of that circle is we want to give them the best possible experience, but how much is too much? And I think that question is probably going to become a question, not this year, not next year, but I think in about thirty six months it's going to start coming in the opposite direction because two things are going to happen. At some point, labor rates basically have to plateau for a while. I think labor rates have to plateau for a while because I think it's getting to the point where there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of our consumer base that are not going to be able to afford the service. So they're not going to. And that's a problem from a couple different areas. When people stop fixing things, not necessarily because there's a lack of parts or whatever, whatever, when they stop fixing things if they can't afford it, that's a safety issue en masse for the public. That's that's gonna be a problem. Also, from a dealership standpoint, if you become so expensive, and now I realize the independents are getting more expensive as well, you're literally giving customers to your competition, the 16 stores around your store um, that can service and do that five seven minute oil change because they can. I'm I'm a consumer of that because none of the de- local dealerships can get me out in less than 90 minutes. An oil change mm-hmm. takes me 90 minutes around here. Mm-hmm. I can go to when I when I take my son to soccer in the local 
we'll call it the local city, and that's the way around here, 45 minutes away. I can be in and out in seven minutes. Yeah. Door up, yeah, it's funny. drive in, oil change, pay out, door down, seven minutes. Like it's it's. Why do I? And it's the same price. Same price. Yeah, and I, I was talking to the technicians about this today because you know I was I was saying the difference between that that five minute oil change place versus us you know, and why wouldn't I go there? And they said, well, you're not going to get the quality. I said, but I got an hour of my life, right? I got an hour of my life back and I kind of don't care about the quality because the price is about the same. And if I can get an hour that I'm not sitting at a dealership, no matter how nice your coffee machines are, no matter how, what HGTV show is playing or, you know, what, what songs they have on the radio, like no matter how good it is, that doesn't make up for the hour that I can get back, Right. If if I was sitting in the big chair of a store right now, doesn't matter what brand it was, I would hire five techs, just like it's the five people that, that take care of me at the oil change place. I'd hire five techs tomorrow. Obviously, it would be a challenge because it's a challenge right now, but I would hire five tomorrow, and I would put on the door seven minutes or free. And I would I bet you dollars to pesos – the line would be out the door, down the street, and around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I bet you I could charge at least ten to twenty dollars more just because of that. Yeah. Seven you, minutes are free. You can charge more for good service. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that there isn't more dealers. That there, and, and to be honest, I haven't heard a single dealer out there doing any time constraints at all. If, mm-hmm. if, if. A, if a small facility that has a total of seven people in the building in total can service any make or model that comes in the door, any make or model that comes in the door, oil included, try to upsell as much as they possibly – obviously can't stock everything, but upsell as much as they possibly can between air filters and cabin filters and so on and so forth and obviously turn a profit. Why aren't you doing the same? Because now yeah. we get the chance to do an inspection. You get a you get a master tech that every every seven minutes walks through that particular bay, goes do 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 hands it over to the person who can speak to the customer and go, hey, we found these seven things doing the inspection in your seven minute inspect your seven minute oil change. Mm-hmm. We're done, uh, but we should really keep the car. Here's a loaner vehicle. Here's the estimate. Oh. It, that, that's just me. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little obtuse now, and and but yeah, we got to go back to when you said how much is is enough when it comes to customer service or how much is too much, right? <laughs> but anyway, I I think you know it's interesting because I I will go back to that comment you made about the um, the mobile service right now. I feel like it's hot in that because dealers uh, are not wanting to do it. The manufacturers are not really wanting to pay the dealers to do it. And then the customers are not wanting to pay for mobile service. So I think that's uh, one of the examples, at least in my area, um, of this concept of mobile service, which I do think is coming, where I feel like that's kind of caught in the middle of, hey, is this too much customer service? And then the customer is going, is it enough customer service for me to pay for? I don't know. They're kind of caught in the middle there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting place right now. We're not – It's like you said, it's not really caught on. There's some – I think Ford Lincoln have really caught on and really pushing. They're putting um, money, a lot of money behind it. 
between Vernon Davis, Ed Bozard, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, Ed Roberts, Ed Bozard, Ford, I, people who I regularly see and talk, not necessarily regularly talk to Ed, but regularly talk to Vernon, you know, they're big into it. Like, Ford is really big into it. You see the trucks, you see, like, I've seen mobile trucks in Barrie. They're not in my area yet, but I see the mobile trucks in Barrie. I see the mobile trucks online. I see the, mo- like, Ford is big into it. And the question it comes back to, you know, I remember watching Simon Sinek talk about this several years ago. He brings up, um, what is it called? Let me get it right. The law of, innova- uh, law of diffusion of innovation. And it's a yeah. bell, basically a bell curve. Right. It's two and a half percent are the early adopters. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the new thing is. It doesn't matter what it is. They want it. They want to do it. They want to be a part of it. Doesn't matter what it is. They don't care. Early adopters. And then there's a 13 and a half percent that's after that that go. Oh, I want to do it because they're doing it. Right. They're they're early or not necessarily just after early adopters. I can't remember what it is. So that's roughly the first 16 percent. So once you get past the first 16% of people about something new, whether it's a new product, new service, new whatever, you have to get past that 16% before the rest of the population gets it. Because then the first, the first positive engagement is 34%. The second is a minority engagement is the next 34%. And the last laggers, they do it because everybody is like, ah, fine, I have to do it. Once you get past the 16%, floodgates open. So what I'm proposing is we haven't hit 16%. And we obviously haven't because Ford doesn't have 16% of the market share, one. Two, uh, only a percentage of Ford dealers are really adopting it and doing it and going hard on it. Three, Ford themselves, both in Canada and the U.S., aren't pushing it heavy at a national level for marketing. And then until they do, I don't think they're going to get an even bigger penetration. So I think when we get yeah. to that point, I think when the tipping point is when we get at least close to 16% penetration – of that actually people actually knowing that it exists, people knowing that it can happen, especially at a dealer level, and it's not some backyard yeah. mechanic who has put a lift on a flatbed trailer behind their truck and saying, <laughs> yeah. hey, mechanic. When we get past that, I think that's where, where it's going to happen. What would you say, whether it's mobile service, express service, main shop, what would you say is the biggest challenge right now that you're trying to overcome in your shops? Hmm. I mean, this time of year for us, it is the workflow. Um, you know, this time of year is usually pretty tough. We have um, a lot of fall breaks with the schools around, the weather's changing. And just for some reason, you know, we, we ramp up in December and then we take, seems like a couple months off before before March. So I would say, Really, the biggest challenge we face um, this time of year is keeping the consistent workflow. Um, and the technicians, you know, a couple of ways that affects them. So they tend to forget the really good weeks they had if they just had one bad one. I don't know if that's something that, uh, you know, happens everywhere. No, that, that's, that's absolutely that's every single one of us. I am guilty of it. I am absolutely guilty of it. Sometimes it only really took one really, really bad day to forget that I made 70 hours the previous week. So I'm, I'm guilty. Um, I, but I know most of my brothers and sisters out there turning wrenches are probably guilty of it too. Very, there is very few of us that can stay full on hardcore positive, irrespective Mm -hmm. of how much shit we're into. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a different kind of individual altogether. 
right? We're talking yeah. 1%. The 1% can do that. The rest of us are normal human beings. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. it, happens. <laughs> it happens, right? Yeah. So I think from that perspective, seasons changing, you know, you're right. You know, there's different breaks that happen. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big things, and this is, this is personal, but I stopped going outside for the most part, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm in my office here. I'm, I've got the luxury of working from home, which is amazing. I'm, I'm glad that I get that opportunity and that luxury so that I can spend more time with my son, more time with my family because I get to do it. I don't have to commute. But at the same time, I'm in an office all day in my office with artificial lighting, and because of where my office is located in the house and, and the window, i got to block off the window or else I can't physically see my screen. So I am in, in darkness for the most part during the day, and then nighttime comes early, so I don't get the sunshine. Mm-hmm. I think that affects my sleep, that affects my mood, that affects a lot of things, so I've got to take uh, vitamin D supplements. Now I take them, and I know I need to take more come fall time to try and compensate for the the, the, the lack of sun woes. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of folks, irrespective of whether you're a mechanic or not, know that that's a thing. And I think coming into fall, it's very easy to go into the negative because you're not getting sunshine. I love you know the, the reason why I came into SDL, the reason why a lot of things have transpired in the last almost two years is Sean Welsh introduced me. Sean Welsh is a big proponent of getting the hell outside. Like he literally posts about it two, three times a week, every week, and that's his happy place for a lot of reasons. But the fact that the man gets outside, he's getting his vitamin D as often as humanly possible, the real thing. I think we all need to be doing that more in, in one way, shape, or, or form. Would you agree? Is that, is that something you do? Yeah, I love getting outside. I'm a big golfer, so, you know, I uh, it, it gets, um, you know, a little depressing this time of year when it's golf season's coming to an end and we're putting a close on it, you know. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, physical activity, taking care of yourself, getting outside, I think that's all super important to – uh, you know, who you are and, and your mentality and what you're able to handle. So, you know, the, the technician world is, um, it is extremely up and down, especially when you're a flat rate technician. You know, the highs are really high and the lows are really low. It's it's like any commission job, uh, you know, but you didn't get to where you were at, uh, you know, if you didn't have some sort of mental toughness uh, to overcome, uh, you know, that adversity. So, kind of wrapping that up again, you know, we're, we are slower this time of year and, and we do start to have more conversations with employees that are thinking about moving on and, you know, technicians that say, well, maybe I should try something else or I want to guarantee or, or those sorts of things. And to those, if you get technicians telling you, I want to guarantee, it's like, okay, let, let's talk about that a little bit more. What training have you done in the last 90 days? What have you done to improve yourself and your productivity in the last 90 days? When was the last time you read a book? When was the last, last time you tried to bet yourself, even if it's nothing to do with being a mechanic? You know, when was the last time that you went and did a shop walk to see if all the tools are put away? When was the yeah. last time you did a shop walk to see, make sure all the equipment works? When was the last time you filled out an equipment report and said, you know, the alignment machine, the, the right front uh, uh, turntable for the alignment machine is a little bit scratchy. Can I get an hour unapplied so I can take it apart, clean it, put it back together with grease? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing for yourself and what are you doing for the team so that it makes it appropriate for me to review what you're doing? Okay, maybe you're down a little bit of hours. Is that because I'm not giving you enough work? 
or is that because the, the service advisors that I have in the service drive aren't closing enough work? Are we not selling enough CP work? Are we not, you know, are we not selling every single MPI that you present? What are the things that I can do to make sure that you're busy all the time? Because I, I don't deploy you in our shop with our team so that you can get paid for doing nothing. I want you to be successful. I want you to be, you be successful for you, and you being successful makes us as a team successful. So let's review all of that. I don't think there should ever be a guarantee. I think anybody that needs a guarantee is looking for an easy way out and is looking for an easy paycheck. I, I, genu- like, I think guarantees should be thrown in the garbage. I think sign-on bonuses should be thrown in the garbage. All the power to moving expenses and things of that nature, but sign-on bonuses is a sign of a, as a, is typically a sign for a poor leader and a weak technician because they're looking for an easy money instead of looking for the challenge and looking for a place that has a good high-value leader. So – yeah, I, I, instead I, of paying uh, instead of paying sign-on bonuses, I like to pay referral bonuses, right? Because nice. I want my culture I want my culture to be good enough in the store that I'm getting referrals, right? I, I don't have to pay these big sign-on bonuses because I have no way to to actually recruit and attract talent. So, you know, again, I I think that's another thing that you know, if I was a technician and I saw a shop advertising a sign-on bonus, ooh, I, I mean, I'd be worried. I'd be very careful, right? Now, a shop may negotiate one with you, and they may have one, but if they don't advertise it and you find out later that they do have it, that's probably the sign of a good shop there. Yeah, they're looking for a way to separate themselves from the pack mm-hmm. without using it as – and they're not using it as the bait. They're using it as the gravy. Right. I, 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 I would right. say that that might actually I, – I, I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay yeah. with that. Still a bit iffy, but I would have to know exactly who it is, exactly mm-hmm. why it is, exactly why it's being offered. If you're mm-hmm. talking about trying to get a unicorn in the shop, that's probably one of the ways that you can sweeten the pot. If you've mm-hmm. got like a 15-year vet that of one brand that's 15 years in one brand, has all of their certifications, and they have approvable 24 months of 130% productivity, yeah, you're going to be looking for every way you can possible to try to get that person in the store. Like that's that's some serious coin that you're going to put in the dealership's pocket with that individual. Mm-hmm. So you can afford to to make that carrot a little bit bigger. Um, yeah. So that leads us let's leads us I think to the the last question. I think on the flip side of that coin, what's one piece of advice? Knowing you've got sixty five odd technicians under your purview. And you've been in the business long enough to, to to come up with some circumstances. What's your one piece of advice for a technician to be happy tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's um, really to remove the barrier between yourself and the people that you're serving, uh, which are going to be the customers. Uh, the happiest technicians I know tend to be the ones that are the most active with their customers. And it really wasn't something I realized until maybe a little over a year ago. And and I was in a shop and, uh, you know, I was talking about this customer, man, it's just I couldn't get her to understand what was going on and, and it's just confused and she's upset and I'm upset. And he goes, let me call her. I go, well, you're going to call her like the customer? He goes, yeah, let me call her. And, you know, he calls her, straightens it out and, and is talking to her. And uh, I started to realize how many times he personally was reaching out to customers and he had to be one of the happiest, still is the happiest uh, technicians that, that we have in our auto group, you know, and I think, yeah, as a technician, you're in the back, um, you know, you don't feel a lot of respect from the other parts of the dealership. 
The advisor's always yelling at you about, hurry up, this customer's waiting. Hey, I got another car behind you. Hey, they need a PDI. You know, they just sold one in sales. Um, and you never really get to make that connection one-on-one with the people that you're serving. You know, even going to the waiting area and showing the customer a picture of their nail in their tire on your phone, right? You're going to have a much happier day uh, knowing that you're actually seeing the fruits of your labor, you know, and I guess that's the, that's the picture there. You know, technicians in the back, they don't really get to see the fruits of their labor. They don't get to see the customer happy after, you know, they got an engine replacement or, you know, the next time they got on the highway and their car didn't wobble, you know, they, they don't get to see that moment. But, uh, you know, I think that the happiest technicians I've seen are the ones that try to make those connections when uh, the customer's in the shop, whether it's via phone, text, uh, the inspection videos that we were talking about, you know, making sure you do those for the customer and they see you, uh, walking out to the waiting area, uh, and those sorts of things. I think that's the, the biggest way to be happy tomorrow. I'd say talk to a customer. Talk to customers, removing the barriers, making sure you're communicating. And I think that's probably one of the ways we started this, this conversation is building relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter, like, you're, you're networking building relationships, talking to customers, building relationships, talking to your advisors, building relationships. It's amazing what can be done by effectively communicating, building trust, and, and, and creating relationships where they may not have existed prior. And I think part of, part of the difficulty for a lot of technicians right now is they're still focused on the money. Yes, we're flat rate. A lot of folks are flat rate. And doing free inspections sucks. Um, I, I I dislike doing things for free to the utmost. I know there's a lot of folks, and my, my lads also hate doing things for free. But at the end of the day, when you can real actualize and look at your own data, and this is why I preach writing stuff down so much. When you can write down your day and look, free MPI, free MPI, free MPI, free MPI, and you keep writing it. But if you do, if you've never done an MPI before and you start doing them, and you start doing them free, and you start tracking your hours. Your first 30 days typically is going to be a slump, but the 30 days after that and the 30 days after that, you're going to see a steady increase in, in workflow. You're going to see more hours on your work orders. And this is one of the things that technicians who don't write things down don't actualize and don't look at because you're only looking at your flagged hours a day. You, gotta need, you need to start looking at your hours per RO just mm-hmm. like advisors do because advisor will look at the end of the month and go, you know, many aren't. A bonus necessarily on hours per row, but if they see, you know, it's 2.1 this month, and then next month they're trying new things and it's 2.2, well, 2.2 hours per row on 20 ROs a day makes a big impact in the bonus check at the end of the month. Hmm. Same thing for technicians. If you start analyzing your data where you're doing, let's say you were doing 1.3 this month and you start doing free MPIs and it stays 1.3 this month, but next month it's 1.5. And the month after, it's 1.7. That number at the end of the month is a big difference. It's a really big difference. And you start getting to the point where you're actualizing the same hours per row as the advisors and the advisors are doing well. That's a really big check at the end of the month. So do your your due diligence, build relationships, uh, write stuff down, uh, great advice. Austin, thank you for giving me an hour of your time. I really, really appreciate appreciate you coming on the show, yeah. um, giving your time, your energy, your effort, your insight, and your experience. Yeah, appreciate it. It was uh, it was fun. Awesome.